of Revelation. We're going to start in verse 5, which is where we left off last week. And we're going to try to make it through verse 8 this evening. We'll see what we can do. But Revelation, verse 5, we're going to read verses 5 through 6. So it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want us to notice something here as we go through this, because it's easy to miss, but but notice that according to the Bible, love is not a sentimental feeling, but it's a sacrificial action. Do you see that there? It talks about how Jesus loves us, but it doesn't just say that He felt a warm, fuzzy feeling towards us, right? Oh, Jesus loves you. He feels a certain way about you. It's nice, and it's good, and it's warm and fuzzy. No, it says that Jesus loves us, and what did he do? He freed us from our sins by his blood. And I want you to notice, actually, throughout the the New Testament, almost every time the New Testament talks about Jesus loving us, it always puts it with a demonstration of that love. So we'll have some of these verses on screen. John 3.16, which we all know very well. For God so loved the world, what, what happened? He gave his only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. Uh, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ loved us and... Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us, right? Plain, simple, stopped? No. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So so do you see the repeated emphasis in all those verses? The Bible doesn't just simply say, hey, God loves you. The Bible says God loves you and He demonstrates or proves His love in this way, primarily through Jesus giving His life for us. Jesus loves us not with a sentimental feeling, but with a sacrificial action. He gave Himself up for us. It was a love That was demonstrated and proven when He died on the cross, shedding His own blood. And by that act of love, as we see in Revelation, if we can put it back on the screen, Revelation 1, uh, 5. By that act of love, He has freed us from our sins. And so there's a, a great emphasis here that love isn't just felt. Love is seen. And if that's the case... If it's true that love isn't something that's simply felt, love is something that's seen, it means that we have to look at our own hearts and our own lives, don't we? Because then we have to uh, begin to say, well, you know, we talk about it all the time. I love Jesus. I love God. I love the church. I love the Bible. Okay, that's incredibly easy to say, right? 
And you might even feel a certain way. But the question is, when someone looks at your life, can they see that love? Is it a visible love? Or is it something you just have to tell people so that they do know it? Or can they see it? The Bible says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so if our love never moves from our hearts to our hands, is it really love, according to the Bible? Do people know that we love the Lord by what we say or by what they see? And that's something I think that we should all consider, right? When you begin to look at your own life tonight, and you begin to reflect on your life, do people say, hey, I know that person loves God. Well, how do you know? Because they told me. <laughs> Or when someone looks at your life, can they say, I know that that person loves the Lord because I see it. It is so evident. It is so clear by the way that they treat their spouse, by the way they interact with others, by the way that they give themselves to the mission of the church and to the kingdom of God, to the spreading of the gospel. I look at that person and they don't even have to tell me they love Jesus. I can tell they love Jesus. You see the difference there? We shouldn't necessarily have to tell someone. They should be able to tell. What's the result, though, of this? If you continue in verse 6, it says that Jesus, obviously that first result, He frees us from our, our sins by His blood, but there's another result. What happens as a result of us being freed from our sins? Yeah, He made us priests, that's right. We are now a kingdom of priests. That's what we're reading there in, in verse 6. He made us a kingdom of priests to His God and Father. And this is really important language here because this is the exact same language that was used of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 through 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So so notice that the identity of people of God is carried out by the church today. All those who have repented of their sins, who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation... They are the people of God. They are the kingdom of God in the exact same language that is used of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is used here of the church in the New Testament. We are a kingdom of priests. Now, okay, that's really easy to say. What does it mean? (laughs) What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? Spreading the word? Okay, yeah, that's definitely part of it. What else? His chosen ones? Yeah, okay. What else? Facilitate worship. Very good. What else might priests do? Okay, tend to the church. Yeah. Um, One of the key roles that priests had in the Old Testament was that they were these 
mediators between God and man. The priest would represent man before God and then turn around and represent God before man. And so they served as kind of a a go-between. And we know that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. But God has called us to imitate Jesus in that way in this world, primarily, as Brian said, by taking the word to the world. That we are mediating the word of God to the world, proclaiming the gospel message. We're also doing other things like facilitating worship. We're telling people who God is, the proper way to worship. We're telling them how you can know more about God, what he requires of people. All of this is uh, the responsibility of a priest, and that's what he calls us to do. We are a kingdom of priests. And and so uh, all of this uh, applies to our mission. And, And notice what John says here. He says it's all for the glory of God. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so we have a reason to have comfort. We have a word of encouragement. We have a word that will strengthen us and will embolden us. And then I want you to see in verse 7, he's going to give us another little bit of comfort and hope for the church. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, what's the good news slash word of encouragement here? That's right. Jesus is coming back. That's the best news you could hear, right? Like, I mean, we're, the church is meant to be, I won't say we are because we don't always, but we're meant to be waiting in anticipation, right? Like, If you've ever been away from your spouse for any length of time, and you know that's not fun. Like when you have to go to like the Southern Baptist Convention, you have to be around politics for three days. (laughs) Rather than get to be with your your wife, you're counting down the days, right? You're like, oh, two days, three days, whatever. And then daddy's coming home. This is great. Or like if she was away, mommy's coming home. This is awesome. Because that's what we call each other now. It's not even Anna and Alex. It's just daddy and mommy. So, uh But there's this great anticipation and you can't wait and it just fills you with so much joy and hope and excitement. That's how the church is supposed to feel about Jesus coming back. We read here that even though you're in the midst of this broken, beat up world that's full of sin and misery and hardship, Jesus hasn't forgotten you. He's coming back for his bride and this is good news. But also, I want you to notice this, even though it's great news for the church... Notice it is terrifying news for every person who has rejected God's grace and the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The Bible literally says here that they will wail or mourn on account of Him. And so His return is a joy to the church, but it is terrifying to the unbelieving world. Now here's my question to you, church. Is that fair? Is God unloving to do something, like in this case, send His Son back, that will result in the wailing and mourning of countless people on earth? Is God unloving to do that? Is that unfair? Okay, everybody's had their chance. We got a no over here. Okay, yeah. The Bible says here, no. Even so, and I love this language, even so, 
amen. And amen uh, in the Greek here is just a way of saying, like, let it be so. And so the Bible's saying here, hey, it, it is great news that Jesus has come back for the church. Bad news for everybody else. Even so, let it be. It is what it is. That's the reality of the situation. But here's the, the question that you're going to hear very often. Go ahead, submit it to the podcast. I'll answer it again there, so that'll be fun. What about those who don't have the chance to hear the gospel? What about those who have never heard the gospel? What happens to them? Is that fair? Maybe they would have possibly repented if they had heard the gospel. But they, maybe, maybe they didn't even have a chance. So what about those people? They're still going to wail and mourn. Yes, he does, Michael. Thank you for jumping us straight there. <laughs> you got to let the tension build a little bit, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to repeat it. But yeah, Michael, he did give the right answer, right? So, so what happens to those who never hear, or who never had the opportunity? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that all people are without excuse. Because the Bible says every person alive and who has ever lived knows in their heart that there is a God. They know it, very emphatically. They know there is a God, so they're without excuse. The Bible says that every person alive has beheld the glory of God in creation. They've witnessed His unseen attributes, like His, his power and his, his eternal like divine nature. They've witnessed that in creation, in the things that He has made. And so all people are without excuse. In fact, the Bible goes a step further and says that they know that God is real, that there is a God, but what do they do? They suppress that truth, right? They don't want there to be a God, so you just deny it. You suppress it. Because if there isn't a God, it means I'm God, and I get to do whatever I want. I get to make the rules for myself. No one can tell me how to live, and I don't have to feel bad about a single thing that I do. It is the best news possible for me if there's not a God. So the Bible says they suppress that truth. They deny it. They reject it. And because of that, their punishment is just, isn't it? So yes, there is going to be wailing and mourning on that great day of joy for the church when Jesus returns. But they've had their chance. They know that there is a God. And they've denied that. And our world hates to hear that, don't they? Our world hears that, and who do they point the finger at? God. Well, he's evil. This is why I can never be a Christian. This is why I can never believe in God. Look at what he does. How could anybody who's said to be love and loving possibly do that to people? I mean, God is all-powerful. Why didn't he just write it in the sky? There is a God. His name is Jesus. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. He could have done it, right? Are we denying that? No, he could have. They love to point the finger at God and say, you were unfair, you were unjust, you were unloving. Let me ask you a question, church. Who's the finger supposed to be pointed at? Yeah. That's why it's not fun to hear this, right? Our world wants to blame God for the fact that there are people dying without the gospel. Who did Jesus say is responsible for taking the gospel to the nations? Oh, that's us. Now, how how many Christians speak up, though, when the world is condemning God and bashing God and saying, well, that God is evil, blah, blah, blah. What do we do? We try to defend Him, right? 
We're like the, the, you know, to use an example, if Judah were to like break one of Ezra's toys, and then I come in, I'm like, Ezra, what did you do? And Judah's like, hey, don't get on to him. You know, he's just a baby, blah, blah, blah. He starts trying to defend him for something he didn't do. That's what we do with God. Our world's like, God is evil. We're like, oh, come on. He's actually really loving. You got to just get to know him right. He's got his son named Jesus. He did some great things for us. We start to defend God like he's the one responsible. Meanwhile, God said, hold on a second. I told you to go to the nations. Jesus said, go and make disciples of the nations. That is the responsibility of the church. And so we don't need to let the world condemn God for the church's laziness and disobedience. Right? Just plain and simple. If you don't like the fact that there are people dying without hearing the gospel, go take them the gospel. That's not on God. That's on you. That's on the church. And imagine how many more people or how fewer people there would be who hadn't heard the gospel if the church had been doing its responsibility ever since Jesus gave that command. We might not even have that problem anymore, right? But we want to put it on someone else. We want to say someone else will go. Surely God will call another person. It's not my responsibility. I'm here. This is where I'm meant to be. God will find some way to get something to them and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, God will, he will save his people from their sins, okay? But understand this, church, he does that through us. We are the ones meant to carry that message to the world. We are the ones who have the responsibility to take it to the nations. And so next time you hear someone talking about the fact that there are people who will die without ever hearing the gospel, I want you to understand that's because of us, not God. And then ask yourself, what are you doing to get the gospel to the nations? What are you doing to help with that problem of people who have never heard the gospel, who have never heard the name of Jesus, who have never read the Bible in their own language? What have you done to contribute? I'm just going to leave that there because that's not the whole point of the sermon, but I just want to leave it there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a literal display of God's perfect creation. Yeah. Oh, I know, all that. Judah even knows. Like, oh, what are those two? I was like, those are some planets lined up, and then we got to have this whole thing. But yeah, there's literal display. So people have enough information to know that there is a God in heaven. There is someone who exists who can bring all of this into being. What they don't have is the details, right? They don't know that they need to repent of their sins. They don't, might not know the name of Jesus. They don't know what he did for them. And so they don't know to repent, trust in him. They don't know that. That's our responsibility. We are to take the gospel to the nation. So let's, again, don't let the world blame God for the church's laziness and disobedience. And then finally, verse 8, we'll conclude with this. Notice what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God, who is and who was 
who was to come, the Almighty. So put simply, He is the beginning and He's the end. He was before all things and He will be after all things. He alone is the Almighty. Now, this is one of those verses you might want to memorize in Revelation because it is such a comforting verse. I mean, you just think about all the things that you've been through so far this week. All the things that haven't gone right for you. All the, the loops you've been thrown, like your baby throwing up all over you unexpectedly. And just all these things that start piling up in your life, and you're like, you know what, I'm at my wit's end. I, I've got no more strength left in me. I, I, I'm not, you know, like, I'm just out of energy. I'm out of strength. This is not how I thought it was going to be. Something's got to change. And then you remember this, and you see God says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning of all things. I am the end of all things. I am the Almighty. I am the one who was, I'm the one who is, and I'm the one who is to come. No matter what happens in life, there's always God. He is the consistent presence that we need in this life of hardships and difficulties. And it is just so comforting to know as a follower of Christ that we have the promise that He'll never leave us, He'll never forsake us. He is always with us, and we are always with Him because we've been bought by the blood of Jesus. And so the fact that He was and is and is to come means that for that is and is to come, we're part of that story now. We get to be with Him for all of that time, and we'll never have to be separated from Him again, all because Jesus did what we read here. He freed us from our sins by His blood. So I just wanted to to conclude with this and, and remind you that this is just the introduction to Revelation. We haven't even gotten into the hard bits yet, but... But it's this unveiling of God's plan and He's promising us a blessing. Hey, read this book. Listen to this book. Obey this book. You will be blessed. He's assuring us that God is bigger than the trials and the circumstances that we face. He's promising us and reminding us that the Spirit we need is with us at all times. That Jesus is sovereign and rules over all things. That no matter what happens in this world and wars and rumors of wars, we know the ending. We don't know who's even fighting, but we know who wins. Jesus. He will have the victory. And the best news of all is that Jesus is coming back for His bride. And that is something that we can look forward to. And we will say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. All right, Gene, how about a word of wisdom?